0: Kapi janabha bhagad-i-bharad-a-vi Kapi janabha bhagad i bharad Ya ranjana Ya Sadanandana nana Ranjana janan ya jana Yamuna tiranga nana chari Yamuna tiranga nana chai Jai Ambishanpad param se par rajkotaria
1: Soni maharaj ko pad this confounder, Acharya Srila ki jai, Anantakoti Vaishnavrinda ki jai, Namacharya Shilaharidas Haridasa Thakur ki jai,
0: Prem Sikahosri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Sidoita Gadadhar Sivasati Gaur Bhaktarinda ki jai, Shri Sri Radhakrishna Gopinah Saimakunda Radhakunda ki jai. Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai, Natura Ki Jai, Navadvip Mayapur
1: Jai, Jai, Ganga Jamunadevi Devi Ki Jai, Bhakti Devi Ki Jai, Tulsi Maharani Ki Jai,
0: Samaveta Bhaktivinda Ki Jai, jai, jai Gaur Premanande. All glorious to the assembled devotees. All glorious to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri, Guru, and Goranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutalai Srimadze Bhakti Vedanta
1: Swami Niti Namane. Namaste Sarasvati Devi Goravani Pacharni Nivisesa Sini, Vali, Pasti, Chari, Vandeham Hamshi Guru Shri Utah, Padakamalam Shri, Guru and Vaishnavam Shashri, Rupam, Sagrujatam Sahagana, Ragana Tam, Vitam, Sam, Sajivam, Sadvadutam, Padijana, Sahita, Krishna Chaitanya Deva, Shri Radha, Krishna Padam, Sahagana, Lalita Shri, Vishakam, Vitamsh. Vanchakalpatri Bishaki Bissin Vieva,
0: Chapati, Chanam,
1: April 16, 2018, Skype Class from Hilo, Hawaii, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 3, Chapter 30, Description by Lord Kapila of Adverse Fruit of Activities, Text 6.
0: Atma jaya sutagara, pasudra vinabandushu. Nirudha Mulla Atmanamba Humanyate Atma
1: Body Jaya Wife Sutta Children, Agara, Home, Pashu, Animals, Javana, Wealth, Bandushu, In Friends,
0: Neruda Mula, Deep rooted Ridayaha,
1: his heart, Atmanam, himself, Bahu, highly, Manyate, he thinks. Translation in purport by Srila Prabhupada. Such satisfaction with one's standard of living is due to deep-rooted attraction for body, wife, home, children, animals, wealth, and friends. In such association, the conditioned soul thinks himself quite perfect. PURPORT This so-called perfection of human life is a concoction. Therefore, it is said that the materialist, however materially qualified he may be, is worthless because he is hovering on the mental plane, which will drag him again to the material existence of temporary life. One who acts on the mental plane cannot get promotion to the spiritual. Such a person is always sure to glide down again to material life. In the association of so-called society, friendship, and love, the conditioned soul appears completely satisfied." Atma jaya sutagara pashu bandushu ni ruda mula atmanam bahu manyate. Such satisfaction with one's standard of living is due to deep rooted attraction for body, wife, home, children, animals, wealth, and friends. In such association, the conditioned soul thinks himself quite perfect. So here, Jilaprabhupada is using this word satisfaction in his translation and uh, satisfied also in the purport. The conditioned soul appears fully satisfied. So this concept of satisfaction is very prominent in bhakti. bhakti yad What satisfies the soul is this paradharma, to the Supreme Lord and Krishna says, And this satisfaction. And here, Prabhupada is pulling this from this niruda mudal, this deep-rooted heart uh, bahu, uh, very, uh, very much thinking, deep-rooted in the heart, and not uh, wanting to make any change, not, not wanting to go anywhere. So. This real satisfaction is found in, in bhakti. And it's, it's interesting that in bhakti there's a satisfaction but not a satiation. So here we see that the materialist doesn't want to make a change because they're thinking, well, everything's good. <laughs> Why should I go to the spiritual, as Prabhupada's saying here, that one, uh, one who acts on the mental plane cannot get promotion to the spiritual. There, there's not really any impetus The person is thinking, I I have what I want. But in bhakti, there is a constant impetus to improve. There's a constant impetus to go forward. It's very dynamic. And yet one is completely satisfied. So these things seem contradictory from the mundane perspective. From the mundane perspective, if I'm I'm satisfied, why would I want to go forward? (laughs) If I want to go forward... If I want something dynamic I must not be satisfied. So it's it's a little bewildering. Uh, but in bhakti there is certainly this enthusiasm, right? This utsaha. In fact, this, this utsaha, this enthusiasm, is one of the necessary items for advancing in Krishna consciousness. And Prabhupada talks about how this enthusiasm is necessary in the nectar of instruction. He talks about how enthusiasm is necessary for anything, which we'll get to in a moment, Uh, but to always be enthusiastic to please Krishna more. There's a a kind of uh, dynamic increase that goes on in bhakti, just like Krishna Das Kaviraj very nicely explains in the Chaitanya Charitamrita, I believe it's in Adi 3, where he talks about how that Krishna looks at the gopis and uh, he becomes more beautiful and happier and more filled with love, and they look at him, and they become more beautiful and happier and more filled with love. And uh, Then he looks at them, and he becomes happier, and they look at him, and they become happier. And their beauty and their happiness and their love are constantly increasing by association with one another. As the devotee pleases Krishna, the devotee becomes happier as Krishna sees the devotee is happier, he becomes happier. And Krishna is constantly expanding, and he's constantly expanding his pastimes, he's constantly expanding his service to his devotees, he's giving pleasure to his devotees, and the devotees are constantly expanding their way of serving the Lord and their way of giving pleasure to the Lord. At the same time, they're completely satisfied. We find that the devotees repeatedly say, I don't want anything. I mean, if if someone in this world offers someone who's uh, powerful or wealthy or uh, whatever, influential, if they offer us something, immediately we think of what we want. You know, if, if uh, Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates comes and says, you know, I'll give you any amount of money you want, immediately we'll think, well, I could really replace my car and, you know, pay off my mortgage, and then I could do this, and I could do that, and... I could buy that computer I wanted, whatever, you know, it would depend. I could travel to India, first class, whatever it is that we have in our, our head. And, and, you know, immediately. But the devotees, when they're seeing Krishna, who is the Bhagavan, full of all six opulences, they, they don't ask him for anything. Prahlad Maharaj says, I don't want anything. I'm not a merchant. I, I didn't come here to get something from you. I'm, I'm satisfied. I mean, even they see the demigods, like Dhruva was given benediction, some kuvera. And he's like, I don't want anything, I, I, just, wanna, I just want service. Parad Maharaj said, just make sure there's no material desires in the core of my heart. Make sure my greatest enemy, my father, gets liberated. I, I just want good for others. I don't, I, there's nothing that I want, I'm satisfied. I'm completely satisfied. You know, Prithu Maharaj says, I, just give me millions of tongues and ears so that I can be absorbed in, in chanting <laughs> your name. That's that's what I want. So the devotees have the satisfaction. I, I already have everything. I, I don't want anything. I, and, yet, and yet they're always expanding in this dynamic service. So this is the kind of satisfaction. And, and Krishna says in the 12th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, that one who is dear to him, who is uh, silent and satisfied with anything, you know, we find that on the material platform, the devotee is consistently described as being equipoised, as not desiring anything, as seeing the good and the bad and the auspicious, the inauspicious, the pleasing, the not pleasing, the heat, the cold, the friends and enemies and neutral, all, all equally. Why? Because they're, they're satisfied. I have this kind of, uh, I've got what I want, I have Krishna, I don't need anything else. So that kind of satisfaction mixed with dynamic service in bhakti is what we're aspiring for. So we're not opposed to the concept of being satisfied. Huh? But let's look at the idea of satisfaction and striving on the material platform. Which is what's being described here. And as we mentioned just a few minutes ago, Srila Prabhupada, in his purport in the Nectar of Instruction for the Utsaya, Nishaya, for Utsaha, he says that even materially, one cannot accomplish anything unless one is enthusiastic. It's, it's just not possible. Uh, you know, you, you have to be uh, enthusiastic to get a a degree in school. You, know, you have to get out of bed and go to classes, and do your homework. You have to be enthusiastic to earn money. You have to go to your work or go to your business. Even if you're a criminal, you have to be enthusiastic to, you know, hack the old people on the internet or whatever you do. So there has to be some enthusiasm. If you want a good relationship with another human being, you have to be enthusiastic to work at that relationship. There's there's no question of if you want to clean house you have to be enthusiastic to clean the house, you know. It's, there's no question of achieving anything without some enthusiasm, which comes from some sense of, of striving. So let's again let's look materially, and I wanted to look in terms of the modes and the varnas. So uh, let's look first at the shudra varna. So the shudra varna. Is characterized by a kind of simple satisfaction, and that can be a very good thing. If you're a a devotee who has a shudra varna, if one is in the field of artistry, the shudra varna provides all of the beauty and function in society. The, the shudra varna that's what makes everything work, <laughs> and again, it what makes everything beautiful, even if one is not an artist or a musician or something like that. Even picking up the trash beautifies society. You know, making smooth roads is, beaut- is beautification for society. And in fact, it's the shudras that provide the means of rasa or taste and pleasure in society. Through the beauty and through the arts, they're providing everything on the sensory and emotional platform. And the ideal shudra is satisfied the ideal shudra is satisfied with their craft. And they're very much satisfied with service. So the ideal shudra is happy to make a painting that hangs in someone else's house. And they're they're satisfied with the happiness of others, which of course is the foundational basis of love. And just to do their craft nicely, to have done something good for others, even in a small way, to take pleasure in their own artistry and their own expertise and not to be really interested with becoming uh, opulent in the world to be satisfied with a humble simple life is is a very beautiful thing so that's the the good satisfaction for one who's working for Krishna in the field of artistry but the problem is that those in the field of artistry uh, tend to get Uh, Influenced by the by ego in the form of tamagun, so the ego in the form of tamagun, the false ego in the form of tamagun, uh, comes with a, a kind of laziness that masquerades as satisfaction, and we see that that's exactly the kind of satisfaction that's being discussed here in this verse. It's very much influenced by this tamagun this ego in the form of ignorance, which is the densest form of ego, where it's, it's like if you have a heavy room darkening shade over your windows where you really can't see anything. And in this mode of ignorance, one just feels, whatever I can get easily, uh, that, that's sufficient. But it becomes a kind of laziness and complacency So this mode of ignorance satisfaction is what disposes people to not clean their house. You know, why should I bother to clean? As long as I can function in the house without cleaning it, as long as I can get what I need, then why bother to clean it? You know, I I remember we had a neighbor in North Carolina who lived in a mobile home with, I think they had like six kids in a mobile home, so it was kind of crowded, but still I remember... A few times when I went in there to speak to them, their kitchen counter was so covered with stuff that there was no question of doing any cooking. And it was just, cooking was completely impossible. It was just covered with, you know, prepared food. And so this idea that, well, the easiest thing is just for me to buy something that's prepared, never mind that it's anything in the shop is 6 to 12 months old and full of chemicals to make it seem fresh and so forth, and in the long run it's going to damage my health... I mean, there's all this evidence that one of the leading causes of cancer is highly prepared foods. But never mind, you know, I'll deal with that later. Uh, I'll worry about that later. I'll just, whatever, whatever is easiest to get. So that kind of satisfaction, which is a product of the mode of ignorance, is actually very dangerous. And it's a difficulty with anyone in this age. It particularly tends to trip up, up those who are attracted to work in the field of artistry. The uh, gunas are compared to ropes, and we could say that that's a, a particular rope that trips up those in, those in that field, that the natural satisfaction that they have, which is a very good thing with a simple life and, and so forth, can also lead to this kind of, of just complacency. And one of the real dangers of it is that one will not engage in dharmic activities, because to do dharmic activities often requires some effort. And those who are affected by the mode of ignorance don't generally like to make more than the minimal amount of effort. And so if something sinful requires less effort than something that is pious, they're going to do what is sinful. They'll only do what is pious if it's convenient. Uh, This tendency to only do the right thing if it's convenient, again, is extremely prominent in this Kali Yuga. And just like a little side note, is if we want to get people to do the right thing, we should make it convenient. Uh, if we make something, if we make uh, sadhana, if we make cleanliness, if we make uh, general responsibility inconvenient for people, and then we expect them to have the inner drive to do what's right even though it's inconvenient, or we're shooting ourselves in the foot in this age. We should make it as, as easy and convenient as possible. For people to be Krishna conscious, for people to do the right thing, and that's true in our own home—how we structure our home, where our, you know, what trouble we have to go through to do daily worship, to offer our food, to read Prabhupada's books—ever, we should make these things as easy as possible, because being affected very much by the mode of ignorance and Kalo Sutra Sambhava, uh having a tendency for a sudra mentality in the present age. Uh, If something's too much trouble, we probably won't do it. We'll probably take the easy path. And this is true for ourselves in our sadhana. It's true in our preaching. Make things easy for people. Whatever whatever it is you're trying to get people to do, make it as easy as possible. There was an interesting study in this regard about um, people donating food, cans of food for a, a food drive for the poor. And at first, this was done in a college, and they asked people in the dormitories to rate the other students in the dorms as are they helpful people or selfish people. And then they sent out letters to everybody asking them to donate food at a very well-known spot in campus. And when they did that, the students rated as helpful, of course, tended more to donate food than the students uh, who were characterized as selfish. Then the next month they sent out another letter, but this time it had a map of the campus, and it asked people to donate specific food, uh, namely cans of beans, and it also suggested that they donate food at this very well-known spot in campus while they were on their way to a class that went through it. So it presented it as easier. And when they presented it as easier, not only did all of the food distribution go up, but the people characterized as selfish actually had a higher uh, rise in the number of people that donated than the people that were characterized as normally charitable. So if you want to get people who are selfish and very much in the mode of ignorance to do the right thing, make it easy and convenient for them. Then looking at the sattriyas and vaishas, who are more influenced, who have uh, a different mood, so the, one of the characteristics of the Vaishas and the is a feeling of not being satisfied. In fact, it's one of the ways you can tell that somebody is naturally meant to be in that Varna. And this feeling of not being satisfied is a very important part of these two Varnas. Because the Kshatriya always has to have the mood of giving greater and greater protection and more and more protection. And Kshatriya is supposed to be looking at even kingdoms other than uh, their own and seeing that if some ruler of another kingdom is abusing the citizens and not taking care of the citizens, then the Ksatriya has to make war on that other kingdom to wrest the kingdom away from this bad leader and put it in the hands of themselves or of a good leader. Uh, Not necessarily themselves like when uh, Krishna and Bhima defeated Jarasandha, they gave the kingdom to his son, uh, Sahadev. It wasn't that they wanted to take over the kingdom themselves for their own aggrandizement and wealth, but they wanted the kingdom to be in the hands of somebody who'd really protect the kingdom. So this need of going outside of one's comfort zone, of going outside of what one already has, of putting oneself in danger. The ksatriya has to be willing uh, to go personally into a dangerous situation. Most of us run away from danger. But the ksatriya has to be willing to run into danger, to run into the fire, to run into the fight, to go toward the criminal, to go toward the battlefield. So this is a a necessary thing for ksatriya to do. And the vaisha has to be uh, thinking, how can I increase the prosperity of society? Because the vaisha is providing all of the wealth of society in the form of food and uh, clothing, medicines, which are produced from the land, from the water, from the animals. The Vaishas dealing with all the natural resources. And the is always having to think of, how can I increase prosperity for everyone? So this, again, uh, not being satisfied with what one has and going on and on and on. Now, it, the, the difficulty is, that both the Ksatriyas and the Vaishas can be influenced by Rajagun, by the mode of passion, and the Vaishas also have some difficulty with the mode of ignorance. And this mode of passion induces us to look for pleasure in in sensory experiences and mental experiences, particularly the mental experience of I'm a good dharmic person, and sensory pleasure, food, sex, comfort, and things of that nature. And so the problem with Rajagun is that one can be thinking? First of all, I need more and more and more and more of these. I need more and more accolades. I need, uh, you know, more and more people to praise me. I need bigger and bigger crowds at at uh, at my speeches and more and more articles about me and you know so forth. And I need more and more money for myself and bigger and bigger houses. And so this is the uh, the difficulty with uh, you know more and more sexual partners and. So this is the difficulty with those and those varnas, that they can be tripped up by this rope of rajagun. It can, it can trip up their ego so that they're constantly striving for things which are going to end up putting them doing something sinful. That's the difficulty. Although rajagun tends to push you to do things according to dharma, uh, we all have our destiny according to our karma. So we have a destiny of how much sense gratification and wealth and so forth we're going to have in this life. And there needs to be some level of of acceptance of that. So if the ksatria is has this sense of dissatisfaction in terms of his service to society and to the Lord, and the vaisya has a sense of dissatisfaction in terms of service to society and to the Lord, that's very good. But as soon as it becomes in Rajagun and one has a sense of dissatisfaction in terms of one's sense enjoyment and one's uh, mental enjoyment in terms of praise and honor, then as soon as one reaches the limit of what one has achieved through one's karma, then one will be inclined to sinful activities and will be pulled down into the mode of ignorance. So, And we see this happening you know, the Vedic standard is that the tendency for increase, 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 and lack of satisfaction of the people in these varnas is pushed into service. But the, uh, the difficulty, again, is that it may be used for sense gratification. So, in each of these in the sudra, in the vaishya, in the, the kshatriya, we can see how the natural tendency of the person can be used in service and it can be used for sense gratification. And when it's used for sense gratification, it ends up having a problem. You know. So again, the Shudra tends to take satisfaction in their craft, in their family, in their whatever is easily done. And the Vaisha and the Satriya tend to take satisfaction in sense enjoyment, in power, in strength, in increase, and so forth. Then the Brahmana's satisfaction is, is interesting. The good satisfaction for the brahmana is if they're satisfied with their own happiness within so that they're not able to be compromised in their search for truth and their presentation of truth. So the, the sense of peacefulness and joy and uh, being equipoised poised and being balanced inside is so great that there's no amount of money or prestige or a sense enjoyment that can influence them to change the truth, to present the truth in another way. Uh, that they're, just like Prabhupada talked about, the Brahmanas who are satisfied just living under a tree, begging some rice, and getting the tamarind from the tree. And therefore, that no wealthy government official or business person is able to compromise their principles. Of course, living like this is difficult in the modern day because the government won't even let you live under a tree. You have to have a house up to code and, and so forth with a huge mortgage. So it's a little difficult. But that mentality of being having this inner satisfaction. And the brahmana is meant to be satisfied with the enjoyment of, of knowledge, of understanding, of discovery of knowledge and so forth. And that satisfaction should be such that, that they don't really want to deal with the grosser sensory things of the world. Now, the difficulty with the Brahmanist satisfaction is that they can be tripped up by the mode of goodness. And we find this problem in our preaching of Krishna consciousness, that when we try to preach Krishna consciousness to people in the mode of goodness... They tend to feel so satisfied and happy within that they're not particularly interested. That they're saying, Well, we're we're already spiritual. You know, why do we need to take up any process to become spiritual? Because someone in the mode of goodness, they're very forgiving, they're very equipoised, they're very peaceful. Now, of course, those things are not in and of themselves spiritual. Krishna says the happiness in the mode of goodness awakens one to self-realization. When the mind becomes still and, and peaceful, then self-realization can happen very automatically from that platform. As we've mentioned before, we know one person who came to Krishna consciousness, he was a Buddhist uh, meditation teacher. And when he achieved perfection in his Buddhist meditation, which involved making the mind still, then he saw the super-soul in the heart, he saw Krishna, and so he became very interested in Krishna consciousness. So this is exactly what Krishna predicts, that happiness in the mode of goodness awakens one to self-realization. Uh, but one, if one is just saying, well, I'm, I'm peaceful and I'm together, and mistakes that for spirituality, of course the happiness in the mode of goodness is limited. It's limited and it doesn't fully satisfy the self. But one can say, well, I'll just stay at that platform. And there's also, the ha- this happiness and the mode of goodness tends in this material world to be mixed with some passion, some pride. Oh, I'm so equipoised. <laughs> I'm so peaceful, as Prabhupada explains very nicely. You know, I'm, I'm better than those people engaged in striving in the world. You know, I'm, I'm not after money and fame, and I'm, so I'm, I'm a better person. I'm free from sinful things, you know. And, and that, that kind of satisfaction with oneself. I'm a good person. So in the, mode of, in the mode of ignorance, you don't really care if people think you're a good person or not. In the mode of passion, you want others to give you accolades for being a good and moral person. In the mode of goodness, you're always patting yourself on the back for being a good person. And in bhakti, all you care is that Krishna is happy with you. You don't really care whether or not you're a good person in, a, in an ordinary sense. In bhakti, you're not even patting yourself on the back for being a good sadhaka. You're just like, is are Guru and Krishna pleased with me? Okay, <laughs> that's, that's all. Uh, so one should be uh, very careful as to where and how one is becoming satisfied and how and where one is striving. According to the modes we have acquired, we are all going to tend to find some satisfaction in certain aspects of the world. And the way that we find satisfaction of the, in the world, according to the particular way the modes combine in us, is something that we can use in service, and it can also be something that prevents us from going forward in service. Now we, we find the the place. Krishna tells us that we're supposed to work according to our nature. He's very emphatic on this point. That we're supposed to do the kind of work and activities in the world that are in accord with the modes of nature that we have acquired. That's that's his order. And in fact, Krishna says that we cannot do otherwise. We we're not going to be capable of acting differently than our nature. And he says that we can use this in service, that by doing our our natural work, that we can attain perfection by using that in service. But we do have to be careful that when we get into the area of our satisfaction that we can then be pulled down by the modes that are associated with that area and think, I'm okay. Everything's just okay. Now, of course, that's sort of satisfaction. With that's being explained here. My own standard of living, you know, which is—I mean—here is I mean, here it's talking about it's a, my body, my spouse, my home, my family, uh, my animals, my form of wealth, my friends. Uh, that sort of satisfaction isn't real satisfaction. That's the problem. So, if we get pulled into our, the modes there's always going to be this existential kind of angst that, you know, is this all there is? Is there, is there nothing else to life? You know, it may not be there at every moment, but it comes out from time to time. Even in the grossest materialist, if you're a human being at all, you know, there's going to be some times when one wonders, even someone who's, you know, totally addicted to some sort of intoxicant, We'll have some times as a human being when they'll say, you know, something's not right here. Is that all there is? So we, we, we need to be very careful because we're not going to get the ultimate satisfaction we want if we get pulled into that materialistic way of thinking. Just as Prabhupada said, the mental platform of happiness. And if we look at, at all the modes of nature, we see each of them is a happiness just on the sensory and mental platform. You know, in the mode of ignorance, I'm just happy with my work and my family and my comfortable chair. and In the mode of passion, it's I'm happy because I'm successful in the world and I'm a good person and I'm giving a lot of charity and I'm, I'm helping the world and I'm helping my family. And In the mode of goodness, it's... You know, I'm balanced and peaceful and equipoise. But all of that is on the mental platform. All, all of that is on the, as Krishna says, mental concoction. None of it is touching the real self. The real self is different. The real self is happy only with, with genuine loving service that genuinely cares about the happiness of Krishna and the devotees we see all the modal happiness is self-centered, even if it may be you know, seemingly about society and family and animals or whatever. It's ultimately about how happy am I? Whereas in Bhakti, it's how happy is Krishna, how happy are, is Guru, how happy are the devotees. And that kind of happiness is what, what we are, this vicarious happiness, that I'm, I'm happy through the happiness of the other, because even Krishna has that vicarious happiness. He's happy by pleasing his devotees. Krishna says that he is purified because he is taking the dust from the lotus feet of his devotees. So when we strive for that kind of happiness, then the material happiness, the material modes, material life, immediately uh, appears to us for what it is, which is just a shadow. It's just a reflection. It's, it's a semblance of, of happiness and satisfaction. It's, it's fake. You know, it's, it's like a, a Hollywood set <laughs> that may look to the viewers of the, of the movie as if it's actually something. But when you're on the Hollywood set, you can see there, there's nothing behind it. It's, it's just pieces of wood. That are painted, you know, or it's just a, a photograph imposed over a green screen. It's it's not, it's not the real thing. So our detachment from this material so-called satisfaction occurs naturally when we take the satisfaction of bhakti. So, uh, questions, comments, additions, subtractions.
2: To know and, and one second. We're, we're getting satisfaction, possibly, but because we're not so advanced or so surrendered, you know, we're following the process, and there's satisfaction, but it's not so great yet that we still feel incomplete and. and desire to sort of supplement that with material satisfaction?
1: Well, we're very fortunate that the process of bhakti provides us with material satisfaction in Krishna's service. Mm. That's our our great benediction of of the process of bhakti. And I'd say, particularly as given by Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, that in other processes of self-realization, karma yoga, gyan yoga, dhyana yoga, you really don't have that. You're, you really are, you know, materially, there's nothing there and you're dependent completely on attaining spiritual satisfaction, which is why in those other processes it's much easier to have a fall down. Whereas in, in Bhakti, the things that we're doing for Krishna are the things that we would naturally do anyway for our own material satisfaction. And so there's some mix. As Prabhupada says, it's gradual and proportional. And it's very nice to explain in Madhurya Kadambani how there's this this mix of self-centered happiness and devotional happiness uh, gradually and proportionally becomes greater and greater in devotion and less and less in, in material. And frankly, that's okay. You know, beating ourselves up for the, the material portion of our happiness, the way in which we're getting happiness materially from our service, is really counterproductive. It's, it'll go away naturally as we progress in bhakti. And it's something that we need to be patient with ourselves and tolerant with ourselves that we're still, even in the course of bhakti, also enjoying some material happiness you know, if that's not the motive for our bhakti, if that's not what's driving us in our bhakti, then it's still considered pure bhakti because we're on the path. To think that, you know, in the beginning of bhakti, I'm only going to find happiness in bhakti, it's not, it's not reasonable. And it's, it's basically, it's not possible. <laughs> and if we think that we're doing that, then we're, we're really probably just proud and fooling ourselves and i see people who are who you know who say like that well i'm not getting any kind of material happiness from anything i'm doing in bhakti and it's all spiritual happiness that eventually they have trouble because we're supposed to be truthful and we're supposed to be honest and at least we have to be truthful and honest with ourselves that you know the happiness i'm getting in 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 the service that i'm doing is you know, 10% from bhakti and 90% from the fact that people are telling me I'm a good devotee and I think I'm a good devotee or that the pizza tastes good or something like that, you know. And it's, uh, it is what it is what it is. But as we progress in bhakti, the proportion gets greater and greater. And one should notice this. It should be something that one can perceive that what's, what's driving me, my, what motivates me, starts to become purer and purer and the what causes me to feel happiness starts to become more and more and more is krishna pleased is guru pleased or the devotees pleased and more and more self-centered and egotistical and and sensory happiness become revolting to me that that i just i don't even want that kind of happiness anymore it it's just like ugh that's disgusting <laughs> And, and we should notice that happening. If that isn't happening, then uh, we must be committing some kind of offenses or doing something radically wrong. So the, the two main reasons for that not happening is either I'm committing offenses or I'm mixing my bhakti with one of these other processes, which tend to be very dry. Uh, so the, one, of those, one of those two things, that I'm, I'm covering bhakti with, with karma or jnana or yoga, or I'm, I'm committing offenses, and the main way that we tend to commit offenses is to other Vaishnavas. Uh, that really kills the happiness in bhakti. But, uh, you know, other offenses also. Seeing bhakti as something material for elevation and, and, and so forth and so on. Thank you. That was a very good question. I appreciate that.
2: Great answer. Yeah, I was seeing, noticing last night at this, our Sunday program in Honolulu. though that was all spiritual. It was all... It wasn't boring. It wasn't like you're just sitting down with your eyes closed. It was so much of the activities that we would do anyway, even if we weren't devotees. It was wonderful, wonderful Kirtan chanting and singing.
1: Exactly. And wonderful
2: prasadam. Exactly. So, you know, philosophical discussion, which people like to talk and social intercourse. It was just lovely.
1: Yeah, I mean, basically, our programs are very much like what people do if they're going to a party. Exactly. They have they have music. They have dancing. They have good food, and they have you know, in, uh, interesting discussions with uh, congenial people. I mean, this is that's what people do when they want to enjoy. <laughs> right. So that's uh, yeah, very much so. And then we're our our process in Mahaprabhu's movement as a preaching movement. So we have constant and and you know, unlimited opportunities to engage our nature, the things that we normally enjoy on the mundane platform in the preaching movement. Nice. Yeah, that's just... uh,
2: Yeah. Thank you very much for your class. Uh, Are there some ways in our international society that we tend to make things too difficult or too easy for newcomers?
1: I don't think you can make it too easy. I I don't think that's possible. Make things as accessible as possible. You know, make Krishna consciousness as, as easy it should be, as least endeavor for people as possible. Too difficult? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just like I know of one family that stopped going to their local temple because the Sunday program was so late at night that it interfered with their children going to sleep and getting up for school in the morning. You know, it's just the temple made it difficult for families, and so that although that temple's been there for decades, they haven't built a community, because the people that go there are mostly single people once they get married and have a family, they can't really participate anymore unless they live very close by, and all the places close by are extremely expensive. You know, we have a lot of temples that were purchased long ago, and the the real estate prices have gone way up in the area since then. So, you know, the temple property is now worth a lot of money, which is very nice. The temple property is in a beautiful place, but nobody can afford to live there. So people have to travel a long distance in order to get to the temple. And like I say, if it, if things are very late at night, then it, it's very difficult for families. You know, you think about, like, most places of worship in the Western world, their Sunday service is in the middle of the day. <laughs> it's not at night. So that it definitely makes things difficult for people. You know, have preaching centers that are close to where people live. I mean, any anything that one can do to make Krishna consciousness easier for people. Or, you know, one of the, the biggest difficulties that I see is that our temple standard of a morning program is almost impossible for working people or people who go to school to copy paste. You know, if you're going to say, "All right, we have a half an hour Mangalartik Arty from 4:30 to 5, then we have Japa from 5 to 7, then we have Didi greeting and Guru Puja from 7 to 7:30 or 7:45, and then we have a class from 7:45 to 8:30." Then we have breakfast from 8.30 to 9.00. So there's a program from 4.30 to, to 9.00, or 9.30 in the morning. And if we tell people that unless and until you do that program at that time in that way, you cannot be Krishna conscious, then people won't do anything. And I've, I've seen this phenomenon happen again and again and again, that devotees who were trained in an ashram situation with that kind of a morning program as soon as they move out of the ashram and they have a job and this and that, they, they end up having no sadhana at all. Or they end up just chanting their rounds and chanting them poorly. And it's, uh, you know, what would be better was if we could also train people, you know, okay, have a program like that for the renunciates in the temple, but also train people from the beginning how to have a program at home that's gonna fit within, you know, your life. That's gonna fit within the fact that your kid has to catch the school bus at seven in the morning and you have to have breakfast and lunch cooked for them. You know, that this make your like Prabhupada said, the householders can have a program in the evening. You know, show people a way where it's easy for them to do regular sadhana, not difficult. We, we have this also idea that, well, like a lot of the places that give Shastra degrees require residency. So I don't know any place you can get a Bhakti Vaibhava degree without residency. And the, there aren't that many places that offer it. So that means you've got to go to India for like a month. So how many people can leave their life and go to India for a month during the school year? You know, I mean, you'd have to have no kids who are in school or want just one parent stay, and one parent go, you know. It's extremely complicated and difficult to get that degree. So not very many people can do it. We, we've made it hard for them. And then we want to say to people, well, you know, it's just you're just not sincere. So, you know, we, we still have this presentation among the, the devotees and the people in general that if you want to meditate on Krishna, you basically have to be a renunciate who lives in the Dham or something like that. And it's, we, we haven't really showed people how to make Krishna consciousness practice and uh, internal understanding easy in their normal life. And doing that is one of my personal goals. You know, to present... Classes and articles and books and courses that say to people, "Hey, it's easy. It's easy. This is how you can do it in your normal life. You know, in your home with your family, with your job, with your school, with your all your obligations, with everything that's going on. Here's how you can be Krishna conscious, and it can be easy." And yeah, if if we don't do that, especially that's true, I think in general, but especially in this age. If it's not easy, people won't do it. There's, there's too much influence of, of Tomagoon at the present time. And it's just, uh, it just is what it is, what it is. To make things difficult, and then to, to, to make things unnecessarily difficult, and then to tell people it's their problem, that they're not determined enough, is,
2: uh,
1: is quite unfair.
2: In, in Paul presence in the beginning of the movement, it really was centered on renuncias, uh, renuncias, uh and to get married or to work outside was really considered a step down. But what we're seeing is that, I may be wrong here, but the future of the movement is its congregation that is married, that has families, that has a life outside the temple. So perhaps this con has not, in general, made that shift yet.
1: Yes, Absolutely. Now, what is what happened was the people, most of the top leaders in our movement, are renunciates, and we're th- thoroughly inculcated into that mood. You know that when, if you think about when Prabhupada started the movement, it actually wasn't like that. Prabhupada basically was getting everybody married. You know, Prabhupada's mood in the beginning was just getting everybody married. And he was encouraging people to have jobs and contribute money and things like that. And then he also saw that as the movement was spreading, he needed people who were free to travel and preach. And so he started deputizing sannyasis. And then what happened is, you know, as Prabhupada was was translating books, you know, we have sections like this and verses like this, which these young, spiritually immature renunciates took these kind of verses about body, wife, home, children, animals, wealth, and friends and used them to denigrate anyone who wasn't like themselves. And that wasn't Prabhupada's mood. That wasn't coming from Prabhupada. Prabhupada wanted to establish a society. <laughs> Prabhupada was talking from the very beginning and encouraging from the very beginning about establishing a society. Prabhupada was never in the mood of everybody should be a renunciate. That was never Prabhupada's mood. You know that that came from the the renunciates that he deputized to do extensive preaching, who read these kind of verses and heard these kind of things and talk about renunci- and Prabhupada talk about renunciation, and really misapplied it. And the time when the movement was exploding was particularly when these renunciates were traveling in buses and so forth all over the world and preaching this philosophy. So the bulk of the senior leaders who were trained in ISKCON were trained with this sort of way of thinking. And so they're still propagating it. And they're propagating it even unconsciously and subtly. So as they're even trying to encourage married people, they don't, they're at the same time... They're putting up some ideal that the real devotee and the best devotee is the renounced person who is, you know, in some secluded place, uh, just chanting 64 rounds a day and reading the Bhagavatam. And that, that idea, even if, even if apparently they're preaching the opposite, is very pervasive. You know, it it pervades to the point that we think the real Gurukul doesn't train you to be competent in the world. Even though Prabhupada says in the second canto that Gurukul gives you uh, specific practical training for a livelihood. So this concept, you know, the real school for the devotee kids makes you materially useless. And the real devotee is materially useless and renounced. I mean, it's it's saturating our, our consciousness and our preaching. And that attitude is actually the main thing preventing us. You know, people talk about is the main thing preventing us from preaching in the West, uh, whether we wear a dhoti, you know, or whether we wear blue jeans. You know, go ahead and wear blue jeans, whatever. But I, I really feel that the main problem is an attitude. That we don't really believe in our heart of hearts that one can become a pure devotee with a house, a family, and a job. We just don't actually believe it. We think that that such a life is always going to be second, third, fourth, or tenth class. And, you know, if you really want to become Krishna conscious, you have to go to Vrindavan for a few months to take the Bhakti Baba course. You know, that that that's the real thing. And anything else is just some sort of a watered-down compromise. And as long as we think like that, we're never, ever, ever Going to become mainstream. It just—it's never going to happen. You know, there, there's no question that some ascetic, monastic, view of reality is going to go mainstream. It's not going to happen. And therefore, my understanding is therefore, Prabhupada also emphasized Varnashram. Because Varnashram done properly is how you inject Krishna consciousness into the natural life cycle, into the natural careers. And and I see this as absolutely the key. This is the key. You know, other things are, are superfluous. Do we use a guitar, or do we use a murdanga? I mean, I just don't see that as being particularly of, of interest. And I'll see that that particularly interested Srila Prabhupada one way or the other. I just, I, th- I think that it's a, it's a, Diversion. That's not the real question. You know, if, if, I, if I wear blue jeans and I use a guitar, but I'm still basically training people that if you really want to be Krishna conscious, you have to be a renounced person living in a holy place or, you know, dedicating your life to preaching 100%, and you have to follow a temple morning program, and then I'm always going to have a very small number of followers.
2: Thank you very much for that answer. We appreciate it. Okay. Yeah, did you say you have to leave now? I guess it's yeah. seven o'clock. I, I want to interrupt by saying that next week this is going to be another one. Thank you so much. I
1: concur with everything Roman probably said. Unterputz. You're
2: doing this terribly.